remember that our lives are hid with Christ on high, that seated on your throne, Lord, we have a great high priest interceding for us. Lord, we thank you for dying and for rising, for winning the victory, for defeating death for us. We praise you for that, Lord. Speak to us as we open your word this morning. Change us and mold us into the image of Jesus. I ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Would you take your seats? Well, good morning, Family Church. I had some great news that we wanted to begin um, before I get into preaching by is just wanted to let everybody know that the Naples campus is officially sold. So praise God for, for that. So the closing happened um, the end of this past week, and so we give God praise for that. Would you pray with me before we go into this morning's message? God, we do give you praise for all the blessings you've given us, God, we do thank you for the sale of the Naples campus. God, we thank you that it was able to uh, to still be used in ministry and that there's another church that will soon be starting there, and we give you praise and glory for that. God, we thank you that we're able to be a, a church that's able to worship your name, that we can open your word and allow it to penetrate our hearts this morning. God, I pray that that happens as we dig into your word. God, I thank you that uh, today we're able to celebrate the beginning of Passion Week as you rode into Jerusalem knowing what you would have to do, giving God glory, and you, you did it for his glory, and we are able to partake in that. God, we praise you for that. Help us this morning. May we hear from you. May you speak through me. May I be an instrument to be used of you, and we thank you for your word and the Holy Spirit that is within us and allows us to understand what your will is. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, we're going to be in Matthew chapter 7. We're continuing in the series on the Sermon on the Mount. We finished the Beatitudes, and we have just a couple more passages before we move on to the next book of the Bible. And so this morning, we're in Matthew chapter 7, verses 21 through 23. So if you can go ahead and turn there. These are going to be our main passages today, um, but we're also going to tie in um, Palm Sunday. And before we dig into verses 21 through 23, we're going to kind of take a look at Palm Sunday, but I want to read verses 21 through 23 before we begin. Starting in 21, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name, cast out demons in your name, and do many mighty works in your name? And then I will I declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Before we dig into this passage, it actually ties perfectly in with Palm Sunday that we are going to see. Um, Palm Sunday is a day where we represent or we celebrate Jesus coming into Jerusalem for Passion Week. He knew what was going to be happening at the end of Passion Week. But as we see, and I want us to go ahead and turn there, it's going to be in Matthew chapter 21. We're going to take a look at Passion Week, the beginning of that as Jesus goes into Jerusalem. And there's a couple of pictures um, that I want us to look at first. They knew the Old Testament. The people in Jerusalem, they were expecting a Messiah, a coming Messiah. And they were expecting this coming Messiah. And they knew from Old Testament passages such as in Ezekiel that this Messiah was going to come in through a gate called the East Gate. 
It was also called Beautiful. We actually have a picture of this gate. This is the gate. It's still there um, in Jerusalem called the East Gate. And this is the gate that actually Jesus went into to the city by. And this is the same gate that was prophesied in old that the Messiah would come in through the East Gate and he would be the one that would bring about freedom from Israel. But something happened between that time. And I, I want us to look because Jewish tradition... Those who don't believe that Jesus is the Messiah, um, they, they believe that one day the Messiah again in the future is going to come in through that gate. And so we're going to get to why that's not necessarily looking like a gate here um, shortly. But let's look at Matthew chapter 21 verses 1 through 11. We actually sang some songs in regards to this this morning, beginning in verse 1. Now when they drew near to Jerusalem and came to Bethphage, to the Mount of Olives, where Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, Go into the village in front of you, and immediately you will find a donkey tied in a colt with her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything, you shall say to them, The Lord needs them, and he will send them at once. This took place to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet. Some 500 years earlier, Zechariah prophesied, saying, Say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you, humbled and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. It says the disciples went and did as Jesus had directed them. They brought the donkey and the colt and put them on their cloaks, and he sat on them. And most of the crowd spread their cloaks on the road, and others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. And the crowds that went before him and that followed him were shouting, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. And when he entered in Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred up, saying, Who is this? And the crowd said, This is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth of Galilee. So the people in Jerusalem knew the Old Testament scriptures. And I want us to look again in verse 8. It says the whole city, and in, other, in um, the Gospel of John, in other passages, it says the whole city was stirred up, and they were praising him as the Son of God. They were praising him as the Messiah. They were praising him, saying, Hosanna in the highest. In verse 8, it says, The crowds, they took their cloaks and they put them on the road. They cut branches from the trees and they went before him shouting, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. But herein lies a problem. Because we just read how the Jewish people of today already worship Jesus as the Messiah. Yet now they have rejected him as the Messiah. And they believe that one day... A new Messiah is going to come in and enter in through this east gate. Now, you may have noticed that this is actually no longer a gate. Um, that's because around 1517, a man by the name of Suleiman the Magnificent came with Islamic forces. They captured Jerusalem, and he was so afraid of this coming Messiah that would liberate Jerusalem, liberate the Israeli people, that he sealed up this gate. Because he was afraid of this prophecy. So his thinking was, if I could just seal up the gate, then the Messiah can't enter into the gate. So, and also on top of that, um, in front of this, they actually put a, um, a cemetery. They, they put an Islamic cemetery, and their, their thinking was that the Son of God, the Messiah, could not enter on a cemetery because of it would be ceremonially unclean. So... There's a couple of problems there. Um, number one, a cemetery is not going to stop the Son of God who can raise people from the dead, okay? He can walk wherever he wants to walk. Uh, number two, 
some concrete walls are not going to stop a Messiah from getting into a city. And number three, the biggest problem is the Messiah has already entered in through the gate. So he's not coming back in through the gate because we've already praised him. He was already praised as the coming Messiah, even from the Jewish people. It says the whole city was in an uproar. So what happened between Sunday, the day we're celebrating today, Palm Sunday, and Friday when the whole city was in an uproar yelling crucify him? Because Sunday they're saying praise him. He's the coming Messiah. Hosanna in the highest the son of David, and they're laying down their cloaks and cutting palm branches. And on Friday, he's being crucified. Something happened, and I want to give some background, and it ties back into our our passage over in Matthew perfectly. Um, To give some background, Jerusalem during the time of Passover was kind of like Marco Island during the time of season. It went from 40,000 people to 200,000 plus in their city during that time. So a lot more than Marco. Um, And also what happened in that time is during Passover, they're celebrating Passover, right? Which was celebrating the liberation from Egypt, the liberation from Pharaoh, that they would no longer be enslaved. And one thing that really, we, we understand Palm Sunday and Jesus entering, but there's some other things that happened the same day that until we understand this, we're trying to figure out what happened in people's mind. One day they're praising him as the Messiah, and the next they're not. Well, what happened was Pontius Pilate, one time a year, was a snowbird also. And Pontius Pilate lived over in Caesarea by the sea in his beach home. And he came over to Jerusalem one time a year during Passover. And he didn't necessarily want to be there. He had to be there. And why he had to be there is all of a sudden you have a town of 40,000 increasing to a town of 200,000 and they're, they're celebrating no longer being under the rule of Pharaoh in Egypt. Yet now they're under Roman rule. So you have a huge increase of people celebrating being freed, yet they're under the, under the oppression of a Roman government and a Roman set of beliefs and Roman soldiers. So... Um, Pontius Pilate would come in and he would make a huge display. Right before they're about to start start celebrating, Pontius Pilate would come in and he'd come in with soldiers. And they would be marching to drums and they would have a huge show of swords and spears and shields. Everything would be highly polished. So what was happening the same day that Jesus entered into Jerusalem, the soldiers on the other side of the city were entering into Jerusalem. So the people were praising Jesus because some of the things that, um, that they were told. Jewish rabbis of that time, they described Jesus as, or the Messiah, the coming Messiah, as a great military leader. He was a great military leader. He would be sent by God from the east, and he would enter into the city, and he would free the city from foreign control. So they came with their own set of expectations and standards and they praised Jesus secretly thinking all of this Roman control that's entering into our city that's oppressing us. This person is going to rise up and God's going to use them to drive out the Roman forces. And that was their expectation. We know from scriptures that that was not Jesus' expectation. He came and he was going to liberate and free us from sin from the captor, not necessarily Roman 
control. It didn't take them long to realize that Jesus was not their Messiah. And what I mean by that is they had this whole set of expectations that I kind of want to go through on Monday. So he entered in. He was praised by the city on Sunday. On Monday, he's going back into the city, and we see in Scripture that he curses the fig tree, which is representing the nation of Israel, rejection of him. He curses the fig tree. And on the same Monday, right after that, if that wasn't already bad, he enters into the temple and drives out all of the religious leaders and the money changers. These are the people who were supporting him, saying he's the one, let's praise him, so that they didn't have any beef with Jesus, and then Jesus entered in, drives them out. Well, Tuesday, what begins to happen is they begin to question Jesus' authority. They're already saying, we don't like what you're doing. We didn't like what happened Monday. And they begin questioning, by whose authority are you doing these things? By what authority? Soon after that, on the same Tuesday, where they're questioning his authority, Jesus tells them the coming destruction of the temple. Now, if you ever have seen the walls of the city and the walls of the temple, it was... um, humongous. It it was impenetrable from forces. And to say that it was going to be destroyed, to say it was going to be destroyed and all the stones falling apart, that's why we see all in scripture them say, it took a long time. It took many years to build this up and you say it's going to be destroyed. Well, that was blasphemous to them. And Jesus says the destruction of the temple. Well, by Wednesday, the day when we see Judas agree to betray Jesus, It only took a couple of days of Jesus being bold about some of these things. Wednesday, Judas agrees, and in less than a couple of days, he's going to be crucified on Friday. Incredible how fickle people can be where one day they praise something, and the next, after a couple of conversations or a couple of things done differently than they like, all of a sudden, they're against now the person they once claimed was the Messiah. And, and many times we need to stop and think, how do we know we're right on all issues? How do we know that we're not acting in the same way, kind of flip-flopping? And, and our culture is full of this thinking, especially the, the Christian culture. culture. Um, and, and I hear things, and maybe you've heard things like this, is, well, my God wouldn't do that. Or the, the Jesus I believe in, or the God I believe in, would never blank. Or he would always blank. And they insert things like, he's always loving. Or or my God would never create a place called hell. Or in my God, what I believe about Jesus, everybody goes to heaven. Well, you know what? When they say those things, they're actually right. Because their God doesn't exist. Their God does believe, or their God doesn't have a, a place called hell. And only a place called heaven. Because it's a figment of their imagination. It is a idol, as the Bible says, and they're not even praising God. Just as those in the city, the whole city was praising him with their words, their actions in just a couple of days proved what they were supportive of. And it's the same thing many, many times um, in our life. And I want to share this past Wednesday night, we had our prayer and worship night. And I really encourage all of us to come to this. This is an intimate time of prayer and worship that we have here at the church. Um, We had around 90 to 100 in attendance, and it's always so encouraging to be here. But one of the passages that was read was 2 Timothy chapter 4, verses 4 through 5, and I want us to look at that this morning. It goes right along with this type of thinking. 
It's 2 Timothy chapter 4, verses 4 through 5. says this, I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearance and his kingdom, preach the word, be ready in season and out of season, reprove, rebuke, exhort, and complete patience and teaching. For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but have itching ears. They will accumulate for themselves teaching to suit their own passions, and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. As for you, always be sober-minded, endure suffering, do the work of an evangelist, fulfill your ministry. People agree and they believe in the type of teaching that they want to believe in. And that's why it's so important that we don't set a standard in our life of anything else except what the Word of God says in every area, regardless of what we were taught or regardless of what we first believed, when we come in contact with something the Word of God says differently, we have to give it a lot of weight. That doesn't mean we believe things flippantly, but that means we pursue and we look into and not say, well, my God would never, or my God always will. We have to back these things with Scripture. And that's one reason, and we must be careful of it. Churches all across the country are being watered down, and it's, it's like the more watered down you become, the bigger, many times, attendance happens because people do not want to hear some of the things that the Bible has to say. And it is very, very tough on some issues. And so I, I know just a while ago, I like to listen to all different types of messages, and I listened to a couple of different messages from huge megachurches. Never once, never once was sin or Jesus Christ mentioned in a couple of messages I listened to. Yet, they have four services and thousands of people. This goes right along with what we just read of Jesus saying, I never knew you. And we're going we're gonna to get to these things shortly. Um, so I want us to see that the whole city was praising him as the Messiah. Some things he said within two to three days changed all of their perspectives. And now by Wednesday... They're ready to crucify him. So I want us to go back to Matthew chapter 7, verses 21 through 23. Beginning in verse 21, listen, we need to listen to what Jesus is saying here. It says, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. A key word there, he says, is not everyone who says to me, And then he continues on, on that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not? And listen to some of the things that these people did. They believed in him and they said things about him and they pursued him. And it says they prophesied in his name. They cast out demons. They actually did these things. They cast out demons in his name. They did mighty works in the name of Jesus Christ. But Jesus says in verse 23, but I will declare to them, Almost like a new revelation to them. I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Jesus has a big difference between what we say and what we do. In verses 21, it says, Not everyone who says, but those who do the will of my Father. This is why it's so problematic 
Um, you know, one big controversy, I know we've talked about it a couple of weeks, but in regards to the homosexuality movement and just different ones of sin, when we say that that is okay, all of a sudden it changes from what we say to what we're now doing. And any area of sin in our life that we are pursuing and we're not, and we are content, we're satisfied in that, Jesus is saying we can't live that way. You know, it's problematic for somebody to say, well, you know, we're all sinners and, you know, if we start really picking at that sin versus that sin, then all of a sudden, you know, all of us are going to be failing. And that is the point. We're all failing. And there's a huge difference. And I myself, yes, am a sinner, sin often, sin daily. But there's a difference between me sinning and saying, well, you know, everybody's a sinner. I'm okay with my sin. God's going to forgive me. There's a big difference in that and saying, I'm not content in my sin and I am destroying by the best of my ability the sin in my life and I'm turning and I'm running to Christ and I don't want to do this anymore and I want to run to him. There's a big difference in that type of attitude. So we need to, in our relationships, in our families, with our friends, if somebody's professing Christ and they're saying they're a Christian, but their actions are proving otherwise, the Bible says, time out, there's a big problem. There are scriptures that say anyone who professes Jesus Christ and calls upon him will be saved. But out of that, and in every account, and this should, this should scare us because it's a frightening fact about the word of God. In every account, when Jesus is separating those who are truly Christians from those who are not Christians, those who are going to spend eternity with him, and those who are going to spend eternity separated from him. In every case, the distinguishing factor is not what they say. It's not what they profess. It's what they actually lived out. Now, this does not mean that by working out our salvation, by doing good works, we are saved. It's not what it means. It means when we profess Jesus Christ, and we actually believe it with our heart, mind, soul, and strength, then we will work out our salvation in our life. If somebody is not working that out and they're just professing it, every instance Jesus says they've made a profession to me, let's look at the fruit. The fruit says they, they're not really committed. And in every instance, he separates those out. So we need to really think about these things because it should terrify. It should really terrify us. Um, John MacArthur, he gives seven points. Seven points... Or seven conditions that do not prove or disprove genuine saving faith. And I want us to take a look at these. Because many times we put a lot of support, a lot of evidence on these things. The first one is visible morality. Just because somebody's good, and we preached on this a couple of weeks ago, just because somebody is living out a good life and they say they're a Christian does not mean they're a Christian. Just because somebody is living out a bad life, they still could be a Christian and be a prodigal. But that doesn't mean we accept that, right? That doesn't mean we just accept it and say, hey, you know, I know that they're a Christian. They're just living a bad life right now and they're going to come back. No, we're supposed to talk with them and say, time out. You're professing Christ and you're living that way. That says you're not a Christian. So either you're not or you're in rebellion. You need to come back. You need to come back. So visible morality. Secondly, intellectual knowledge. It doesn't matter how much or how little you know. That's not a proof of salvation. It's not, a dis, it's not disproving of salvation. Religious involvement. Jesus is talking right here in verses 21 through 23 of religious people. Doesn't matter how religious or not religious. 
It matters how they're living their life. It matters what they put their trust into. Now, we can say, because there are some that say, you know, I don't go to church. I do church at home. Jesus says we, we shouldn't just do church at home. We need to do church with the fellowship. Do not forsake the fellowship of the believers. That's a, that's a living it out. That's an action. And if, if we understand these things, we should pursue that. Number four, active ministry. There have been countless, countless pastors that have pastored for years, not, not saved. They've pastored, they preached, they led people to Jesus Christ. And later in their ministry, we just talked about one this week. Later in their ministry, they realized they never really were a Christian. And they became broken over their sin and believed and confessed. And for the first time, really understood what it meant to repent of their sins and trusted in him. So even having an active ministry, even a fruitful ministry, isn't necessarily a sign of salvation or a sign not of salvation. Conviction of sin. Um, Corinthians 7.10 says that there is conviction of sin that happens that's worldly, that leads to death, and there's conviction of sin that is godly, which leads to repentance. Both sides can be broken over doing something. The Bible says we all have the work of God, the law of God written on our hearts, and we know what is good and we are broken about it, but that doesn't necessarily mean somebody is saved. A feeling of assurance. This is one, um, I grew up in church, and anytime I would be doubting my salvation, I would be told, well, do you remember a time of a decision, number seven? Because I grew up in a church where I, there were some people getting baptized, and I was in elementary school, and my brothers went forward, and I'm like, hey, I want to do that, and people are getting saved, and I went forward, and I wasn't a Christian, and I believed, I believed in Jesus Christ. I believed in God, and I said I believed, but I didn't become a Christian way later, until way later. And so I had a feeling of assurance, and whenever I began to doubt that, what was I told? Well, do you remember what you did? And I said, yeah, I remember. Well, do you believe in Jesus Christ? Yeah. <laughs> do you believe in God? Do you believe he died for your sin? Yeah, I believe in those things, but I wasn't, I wasn't saved, I believed in those things, but my life, I wasn't living those out. And the people who were trying to help me, the only thing that they were really doing was driving me away. Because the Holy Spirit and God was working in my heart saying, you're not saved. You're not saved. You're not saved. And I was being convicted and I was, I was struggling with, am I really saved? And then somebody out of love, trying to do what's right, trying to reassure me of my salvation would come alongside of me and say, don't worry, if you just remember this and you just, you just have more faith in the faith that you think you have. And, and I lived in that thinking, I just need to have more faith and know. I just need to know. And it wasn't until God really got a hold of my heart and I understood my brokenness and my sinfulness. But where, did this, where does this thinking come from that we should never doubt our assurance? That doesn't mean we're doubting God's provision of assurance. It means maybe we're not saved and we think we have. We have been. I want us to look at Philippians 2, chapter 12, verses 12 and 13. Because the Bible says we should actually doubt our salvation. And it is healthy to do so. Opposite many times what we heard or what I heard growing up. In verses 12 through 13. It says, therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only is in my presence, but much more in my absence, listen to what it says, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. 
working it out. There are times where it is really healthy for us to say, am I really saved? What am I doing with my life? Because if we act like we have it all together and we're saved and we're doing this all good, we're not relying on prayer. We're not relying on his sufficiency. We're relying on our self-sufficiency. The Bible says we should not be self-sufficient. We should be broken. It says, for it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. And if God's not working in you, maybe it's a sign. And don't be prideful about it. I know I was years prideful of, well, no, I know I am. When I really had some struggles and some doubts, and it's healthy to have those. Second Corinthians chapter 13, 5 through 8. Listen to what it says. Examine yourselves. It means step back and examine, are you even in the faith? To see whether you were in the faith. Test yourselves. Or do you not realize this about yourself, that Jesus Christ is in you? Unless, indeed, you fail to meet the test. I hope you will find that we have not failed the test, but we pray to God that you may not do wrong. Not that we may appear to have met the test, but that you may do what is right, though we may seem to have failed. For we cannot do anything against the truth, but only for the truth. We can have an assurance of salvation. But it's something not that we work in our own faith. And it's healthy for us to step back and really analyze what does my life look like? I mean, there are times when I can say something to somebody or have, have a, a heart issue or a thought. I should stop and say, God, am, am I really even saved? How can a Christian act this way? And that drives me to him. It drives me to him. And that's what we need to be doing. Um, in Matthew chapter 7, you don't need to turn there, but verse 13, Jesus actually is saying that we need to be careful of this. He says, listen, enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide, and the way is easy that leads to destruction. And I feel like we forget this in church. There are many who enter in by it. Jesus is talking to the religious people, those who are professing Jesus Christ. We need to understand there are many people who think they're saved. This is not my words. This is Jesus' words, and he's saying over and over and over, there are many people who think they're saved that are professing Jesus Christ and even doing things that look Christian, and they're not in the faith. And it says, for the gate is narrow, and the way is hard that leads to life, and those who find it are few. We don't need to all of a sudden, just because somebody said that they made a decision or that they are a Christian— or that they had this happen in their life. We don't need to assume for everybody that they are. We have to analyze and love. It's out of love, but it's also out of the sanctity and purity of the church. We are the bride of Jesus Christ. That's why we take such value in membership, because we want to make sure we are pure and unblemished because we are the bride of Christ. And that's what, that's what he deserves. So I think we forget many times Jesus is trying to warn us and to analyze and, and self-evaluate many of these things. Another thing, getting back to kind of Palm Sunday, what happened with Jerusalem, we have expectations. If we stopped and we could have God list out our expectations for us this morning of how we expect God to act in our life, we would be floored, I think, with the amount of expectation we place on God. I mean, when something doesn't go our way or something at work happens uh, wrong or how somebody treats us or something in the church or something in your home life or your spouse, I mean, we have this huge expectation list of how we think our life should go. 
And this is the same problem that those in Jerusalem had. They believed that this Messiah, their Messiah, was going to meet their expectation. And they had the Messiah right in front of them. Just like many of us have the Messiah and the Holy Spirit living right inside of us, we have this knowledge, but when we place an expectation, it's almost like we're blinded. Because all of a sudden, we can't see past our expectation. Just like those in Jerusalem had the Son of God right in front of them, but they couldn't see him as the Messiah. They saw him as filling this expectation in their life. I want to ask us, because the only, the thing that Jesus looks at, and I really want us to evaluate our life in a heartfelt manner, is how are we doing this morning in the doing? As church members, as those in the body of Jesus Christ, professing Christians that we've given our life to him, how are we doing this morning in the doing? Because Jesus, when he separates, he's looking at the fruit, not necessarily a decision or knowledge or I know and I have this assurance. He's looking at the doing. And I mean, parents, how are we doing? as leading our families or our grandchildren or our grandparents? How are we doing as leading our families into truth? Um, Last week, I I was sitting a couple rows back here, and the song Man of Sorrows came on. And maybe you know the song, maybe you don't. We've sang it a couple times, but love the song. Well, I was sitting behind Terry and his family, and Silas was in the front row, and I could hear Silas, who's, what, two, two and a half? I could hear him singing the song, Man of Sorrows, louder than anyone else in this whole area, because he doesn't know how to sing normal. It's like all or nothing with him, and he's singing the song. If you go over to their house, he walks around with like this plastic play rake, and strumming, he has the strumming patterns down and walks around singing the song, Man of Sorrows. And he knows all of it, like the whole words singing the song. How are we doing as parents? He's two. He's only been in service a couple of times when we've sang that song, but they know the songs. And they're worshiping God singing the songs. So how are we doing as, as parents in leading our families into worship, leading our families into prayer? How are we as church members doing? Because we don't need to be deceived. I mean, James 1.22 says, Do not be deceived for those who say you're doing, but you're not doing. You must be actually living this whole thing out. And when I look around and I know in myself, listen, before we preach to you, God has already been working in us and preaching to us this message. I preach to myself, and then we come in here after we've already been destroyed by it. Just so you know, um, I came up to the office the other day, and people were like, what's wrong? I'm like, I just was practicing my sermon, you know. And, and that's the way it should be in our life. Of We need to be pursuing these things. But, for example, I mean, we have core classes every Sunday morning, Bible study at 845. Christians here coming to worship. Why are we not all involved in Bible study? Instead of telling you you need to be involved in things and telling you do this and do this, I just want to ask you, why are you not? And and it's just a conversation between you and God. Why are you not devoted to Bible study? Connect groups. Maybe you're in connect groups. Maybe you're not. Why are you not devoted to the fellowship of meeting with one another for the sake of encouragement? 
discipleship? Have you gone and you're pursuing discipleship with one another? We offer one-to-one discipleship. Many of you have taken advantage of it. But I want to ask you, why are you or aren't you involved in discipleship? Connect groups, core classes, the same thing. I can go into daily devotionals. And the question we need to ask, the question I need to ask myself is, why am I not more committed? Wednesday nights, we have men from the congregation who stand up here and they've worked for weeks to prepare a message to share. Why are we not here on Wednesday night? And I'm not saying this to bash us. I'm saying this because we need this type of stirring up. It's what the church is for, to stir us up and say, God, I'm a professing believer in you. I've given my life to you. You died for me. And I am either too busy or I have other things going on. And it's not about, church, fitting things into our schedule. It's not about fitting Bible study into our schedule. Our schedule as Christians should revolve around everything spiritually related, right? My schedule for my family should revolve around the spiritual things I know we need to be doing. It's not the other way around trying to fit this in. It's we should be showing the world that we are committed to these things and and everything else is going to have to fit into our schedule. Sports are going to have to fit into our schedule. Family devotional time is going to have to fit into our schedule. Having dinner together and discussing things is going to have to, that, that's permanent. Everything else is going to have to fit into our schedule. And this is why I went back to my office broken, you know, the other day, because this is what I feel God is telling me and telling that we need to hear. But this, these are the questions that we need to be asking. And it's the same, it's the same thing that happened on Palm Sunday where they they were rejecting the Messiah where they say they believed in him, but their life didn't add up to it. And we need to be thinking about these type of things. Jesus said that man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. Are we eating the word of God and worship in a way that it is sustaining us? It is the sustaining part of life that we need in us. And so, I think that this is what God wants for us. And when you get to that point where you're eating and you're eating what good is, healthy food, you're gonna, you're, you, never, you never knew what you were missing, right? How many of you, your parents never let you try anything good growing up? You had like cheesecake and they're like, it's not good. And then later you try it and you feel like you were missing out your whole life. It's kind of like that with spiritual things. I promise you, once you get involved and do some of these things, it will fill a void you never knew that you had. So I want to encourage us. We have to make sure we're not imposing expectations on our Savior. We need to understand just as Jesus Christ entered into Jerusalem, he did that for the glory of God and he knew what he was getting into. He was praised as the Messiah, but they rejected him because he didn't fall in line exactly as they wanted him to. And Jesus was the Messiah. And they were praising him as their Messiah. But the problem was their Messiah didn't line up with who the Messiah was. And I think many times in our life, we do the same thing. We, can, we praise him as our God, but we don't praise him as the God. He takes all priority. That's how I need to live. All priority goes to him. Instead, I know many times I become the priority and my wants and my desires. And, and that's something when, when God speaks these things to us, 
We need to just be open because we're all, we're all broken. We're all failures in regards to this area. But Jesus Christ came to set the captives free. Came to set you free from death. Came to set you free from spiritual bondage. But also came to set you free from these type of idols. As well as many times this guilt. We can just freely say, God, please forgive me. I'm sorry. Thank you. Thank you for showing me this. And that's also something that God's really been teaching me. Anytime God reveals these things to us, it is a miracle. I mean, if there's one thing that God has spoken to you this morning, you've learned about God or you've learned about yourself or your brokenness, that is a miracle. Because God didn't have to work these things. He didn't have to teach. He didn't have to teach me. He didn't have to reveal these things. But he's doing it because he loves you. He's doing it because he loves me. So we're going to go into a time of prayer. And then we're going to end with communion. What a great, what a great beginning of Passion Week. It's going to lead all the way up to Friday when communion was taken and Jesus gave his body. And then we're going to celebrate Easter next Sunday. So let's go into prayer. God, we do praise you for who you are. God, you are so good. God, I thank you for speaking to us. God, I know that uh, entering into Passion Week, God, that you came to be a savior for us. God, you came to save us of our own schedules. I know that you've done um, done that for all of us. I know you've done it for me. That we get so busy in life, We get so busy in our job, in things and providing for our family, things that we know are good, but God, they are many times not the best. And help us to realize those things. Help us to change our heart that these may be lasting changes, that they may not be just a flash in the pan where we jump into something and then after a couple of weeks it fizzles out like I know all of us, including myself, have done so many times. God, we do love you and praise you. We thank you for going to the cross on our behalf and for dying for our sins. God, what a, uh, a blessing it is to be able to call your children. God, may we live in that way and may we bring glory and honor to you as we go into this time of communion. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you, Pastor. Good morning. Today is a day of joy and anticipation, isn't it? As we come in on this uh, Palm Sunday, Jesus, the Christ, the Messiah, entered Jerusalem just as the prophet said he would, and people thronged to give him glory. Sadly, many were for the glory they expected him to be, not who he is. So let's come together this morning and give him glory through our communion with him. At the family church, we believe in an open communion. Uh, There's no special classes, no special requirements. You don't have to pass a test. Uh, Don't have to show your driver's license. The only instruction we have are those from God's Word. 1 Corinthians 11 cautions us, So then, whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of sinning against the body and the blood of the Lord. Everyone ought to examine themselves, as Pastor Casey taught on today, before they eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For those who eat and drink without discerning the body of Christ, eat and drink judgment on themselves. So let's take a moment and examine our hearts and our relationships with the Lord. Take this time to turn our devotion back to the triumphant Lord and Savior. If you've not yet accepted him and surrendered your life to him, 
consider letting the tray pass. I encourage you to find one of the pastors afterwards and, uh, and talk to them. So as the deacons come forward to distribute the elements, reflect on those areas you struggle with. Pray and confess those places where you're holding on to the control of your life instead of giving it to him. Turn your heart to him and he is faithful to forgive. As Luke leads us in worship, we'll pray. Please hold the elements until we share them together at the end. Behold the Lamb who bears our sins away, slain for us. And we remember the promise made that all will come in faith. Find forgiveness at the cross. So we share in this bread.
The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup and saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. For wherever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Will you stand with me as we uh, close today in prayer? Father, thank you for the gift of your son. Thank you for his sacrifice for us. Thank you for his, every, his life, his sacrifice, his death, and most certainly for his resurrection. Father, I ask that you send us forth into this week and you direct our hearts back to you fully. That you direct us with your word to have a view of who you are that is found in your word. And then as we go through Wednesday and Friday and Sunday and the significance of those events, that we are found in you, Lord. Father, I just pray for our congregation, your church, as it belongs to you, Lord. Pray that you would guide us through this week and that we may glorify you. In Jesus' name, amen. Have a blessed day, folks.